Welcome to the Amphitheater Show. I'm your host, Aristotle Domingo, and joining me today is Annika Ursulak, also known as an, an awakened amputee. Annika has a left below rotation plasty, a cancer survivor, and claims that her amputation is her superpower. Very excited to have her on the show. Uh, we've known each other quite a while now. So welcome to the show, Annika, and thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. And were you about to call me an awkward amputee? Because yes. you know what? That actually could fit too, because I am awkward sometimes. <laughs> it does. Yeah, an awkward amputee. I, an awakened amputee there, so we, we corrected it. <laughs> you know, if I ever need a tag change, uh, that, might, that might be the next one in the running. There you go. Sounds great. Now, I, I, I deserve credit for, the, for calling you that. I'm just, <laughs> totally. I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, so let's get started. If you could tell us a little bit of background about what uh, rotation plastic is, because I don't think a lot of people know what that is. So sure. if you can describe for our listeners what that is and how you came about to having that procedure done. Okay, yes, I'd love to talk about that. Um, so 1989, I was in grade six, I was 11. And it was sort of throughout the year, I, my right knee was just, it was painful at times, like, if I bent or bent my leg, or if I jumped too much in gym or things like that. And my mom took me to the doctor probably about three times over the school year. And the doctor just said, Oh, it's growing pains, it's growing pains here's a tensor bandage, you know, and so, okay. And then May of, yeah, I guess it was May of 1989. I it was getting to the point where even when I was riding my bike, like my knee hurt. And then we had track and field day at school. And uh, I don't even remember having a sore leg, but I guess my mom got a telephone call from one of the teachers at school that just said, you know, we've been like running and doing activity all day. And Annika was limping when she was walking home so my mom decided again to go to the doctor with me and she you know was kind of a bit of a fierce mama bear where she's like listen you know it, this isn't ligaments so stop or no sorry she goes this isn't a groin pain so stop stop telling us that it is and so what they did was um, I had an x-ray done and I actually uh, got to see the x-ray and there was a big mass in my knee and Initially, the doctors thought that it would just be something that could be scraped out and they would do a bone graft and, uh, you know, build the bone back up. But my mom, again, mama bear, she just didn't feel that that was um, a suitable answer. And she decided that she wanted a pediatric uh, orthopedic doctor to weigh in on it. So that's when I started, you know, going for MRIs and blood tests and, you know, a lot of the things that happens when you're getting checked for cancer. And yeah, the pediatric uh, doctor, he right away said, yeah, no, no, I think we need to do a biopsy. And so it was July of 1989, they cut open my leg, they took a biopsy, and then and I had just gotten a pair of roller skates for my 11th birthday and I was like loving my roller skates and the doctor said like no roller skating until we know what's going on here and it just kind of went from there and it just snowballed really quickly so in August I learned that I had cancer and I learned I had the same cancer that Terry Fox did and I started chemo because they wanted to shrink the tumor as much as they could uh, before amputating and one of the things that they had learned uh, from Terry's time, um, he had, you know, passed away about 10 years earlier, but they had really learned that chemo and amputation was the recommended, like the best, uh, the best chance of survival. So they shrunk my tumor as much as they could. And then I was just really lucky. The orthopedic surgeon that I had after my well during my chemo the orthopedic surgeon met with me and my parents and he came to us and said he had learned he had studied an operation that at the time was very new to the province of Alberta and it had only really been uh going on in in Ontario and it was called rotation plasty and what rotation plasty he said is is that when you amputate above the knee and you have to um, lose lose your knee, there's a way to give yourself like a faux knee joint 
And what that entails is, is you save the calf and the foot, you turn it around and you bring it up and attach it to, to the thigh where, where like the cut was. And it's literally like a transplant where they have to like, sew, you know, things back together. They keep a nerve, they do keep a nerve, but then they like, sew um, um, veins back together and attach and they attach the bone. And so what ends up happening is you have a foot that dangles backwards at where your knee once was. And it provides people with um, more, just a little bit more functionality because they have something that acts in like place of a knee. And so um, I was the third person in Alberta to have that done. And, uh, you know, my parents and I just thought like, what have we got to lose here? And I met another couple of girls who are about my age and they had had it done too fairly new to Canada that surgery like it had been in Ontario for a little bit and then I think Alberta was the only other province at the time who was doing it and then eventually it came to British Columbia um and as far as I know kids in other provinces used to fly to the like to either BC Alberta or Ontario for a while and I think it's I think slowly it's in probably most of the provinces now I don't know about all but but yeah and so it's become a common way um, to treat kids who need amputation who are dealing with uh, the sarcomas like the bone cancers and uh, and yeah and I think for me um, when I went out and met you know the two girls my age one of them you know she showed me how she could still jump on the trampoline and you know she could ride her bike and things like that so with a modified pedal but yeah, so for me, I just thought, okay, well, if I'm going to lose my leg anyways, may as well try this fake knee um, idea. And I really have not had any regrets about the rotation plasty ever since. Um, I think it's just allowed me to be able to, uh, I mean, I'm not breaking any records with athleticism or anything, but I wasn't like that as a kid before I had my leg amputated but I just feel like it's allowed me to live the life that I want and keeping up with my peers in terms of riding my bike and hiking and, um, and just, yeah, those activities that I really like. So just out of curiosity, so you had, you still have, you can still control the need to dorsiflex and flex back and forth. Yeah. So for just those people who's trying to imagine it. So your heel is now the front of your knee, if That's you right. will. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so it, it, so you can have a 90 degree bend. So you can still control your prosthesis with that bend then, correct? Yeah, that's right. And it's not a full 90 degrees because the foot doesn't, uh, the foot doesn't go like, I mean, maybe if you're a ballerina, no, I'm not sure. But yeah, so it's not a full 90 degrees, but I definitely feel like I have like, you know, more than like a 45 degree angle. So it still so allows you to, to move though, right? I play with the, I play golf with a guy who also had rotatioplasty, rotationoplasty, okay. and yeah. uh, he describes it as leaning on the heel part yes. to, in, to to sort of stand, and then he walks like he would on a golf course and plays golf. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And actually, for a long time, um, that was sort of how my prosthesis worked too. But uh, when I moved to British Columbia, I connected with a new prosthetist. Yeah, it was really tough to leave my Alberta prosthetist after like 20 some years, but I have a prosthetist that I've been working with in British Columbia, I guess, probably for about eight years now. And um, what he's done is he has helped me to, he's helped me with the socket where I actually use more than just the ankle. Like it used to be that my ankle would be the main source of power and the rest of the foot would kind of just dangle in the prosthesis. But he's built a prosthesis where now I, I'm pretty much putting weight on my entire foot. And oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it took some time, though, for us to get the prosthesis comfortable because my foot for so long had not been used to, like, carrying weight on it. And the skin as well was, like, really picky about having a, a prosthesis. So, you know, in, in theory, the idea was awesome, and I loved the idea to begin with but I feel like it took a good three, even maybe four years before it got to a point where I was like truly comfortable. 
Um, but yeah, I'm really happy with it now um, that I use like my full foot for to power off. Oh, that's awesome. I mean, there is yeah. a video of you dancing and doing a pirouette actually in the hallway. So, <laughs> yeah. and, and, and so you have to see that video. It's on her Instagram and I'll share her Instagram account afterwards. But yeah, oh. so you have a full on weight that you can put on that now. Yeah. And, you know, do activities kind of like we were talking about keeping up with your friends and your peers about riding a bike and, and all of that. What yeah. was the, um, what, so just when they said, or did they just say to you and your family, we're going to do this procedure or were there other options for the procedure as well? Like, were there any other choices? Yeah, that's a great question. And yes, they basically told me that I could try the rotation plasty or I could have the more traditional, just high amputation and where they did have to amputate because of where the tumor was. Um, it, it was quite a high amputation. Like I really don't have much of my old thigh left. And so I think the way my parents who, you know, you're having to make this decision for your kid. And obviously I was part of the conversation, but I think the way my parents thought of it was, well, we'll try the rotation plasty. And then if by some reason she doesn't like it, you know, it could always be modified, but like, no, I've never, ever, ever had any regrets about the rotation plasty. Good. Like, I, so, you know, I, I can't say that I'm like as fast as somebody who has two real legs. Like, I think the average person, you know, probably walks uh, about maybe four, maybe even five kilometers an hour. I probably, I think back in the day when I used to have an older, more standard prosthesis, I probably would walk more like two, two and a half. But now with the way my prosthesis is now and the fact that I use more of my foot and I would probably say I walk more at like three kilometers an hour, maybe three and a half. And so, so yeah, like I, I wouldn't say that I have the full function of somebody who's like completely got their two real legs. Um, and what's for me, what I had to finally and I didn't really didn't do this until adulthood, but what I finally kind of came to the conclusion where I thought, okay, surround yourself with people who will go at your pace, like really important to find people who will go at your pace and just know that you don't have to put pressure on yourself to perform as though you're an able-bodied person. And also know that you don't have to put pressure on yourself to perform as a top um athlete with a disability you know because even before my leg was amputated you know that wasn't my aptitude you know I was just always kind of middle of the pack or even a little slower when it came to sports mm -hmm. no I think that's really important to hear um, I often get asked it's like did you start running just because you're an amputee now and it's like <laughs> well no no <laughs> it's just something I could go back to <laughs> yeah and that's such a good that's such a good point and you know, the word, I think, disability and amputation and those, it's such a personal, unique, it's so unique to everyone in terms of how they describe themselves. And for so many years, and I guess, you know, it kind of comes with, I lost my leg during adolescence. And then, of course, I spent like the next 10 years trying to fit in with my peers, as you do at that age, regardless, right? And I think I was always putting pressure on myself to perform as though I was able-bodied and to kind of just blend in as though I was able-bodied and just taking that pressure off myself probably in the last like maybe five years or so I, it has just helped me so much to have a better quality of life because it's not about being able-bodied it's just about doing what I can do and competing with how I did yesterday right not how I would do if I still had two real legs and for you I could completely understand how it would, you know, for you, like you were more debilitated when you had your two legs based on what was going. And then when they were amputated, it was like you got your life back again. Oh, absolutely. That, that yeah. was absolutely the thing for me. I was actually going to ask you about that. Like having experiences as a child, we all face barriers, but, you know, being um, a child, there's got to be more challenges, I think, you know, with the peer pressure and then growing up and then not really talking about accessibility back then with schools or a lot of knowledge about accessibility and and how to make you know how to make inclusive environments for children back in the day yeah. and that's not really back in the day it was like the 80s and the 90s when we were growing up so what was that like for you 
oh man okay also such an awesome question that you know it's kind of like it's t- probably been in the last few years that I've sort of really been able to like look back and really kind of be able to look at it from a third person versus just sort of living through it and not giving it too much critical thought. Um, I was really lucky to go to a school where I had a really good group of peers and I went to school with a lot of kids from grade one all the way till graduation in grade 12 and some of them I still am in contact to this day so I really lucked out in that way but something that helped and um, the social worker um, that I was working with that worked with like kids from that had cancer in Edmonton um, at that time was she really recommended that on a day I wasn't at school like I was getting chemo that she actually go in and do a presentation to the kids about you know what was happening to me and what they could expect and what they would see and I think that that was just such a great thing and it I think it just helped so much because I feel like with kids, um, you know, there's a lot of empathy to tap into, but they sometimes just need things explained to them, right? And so I felt very supported by my peers. And then that was like the end of elementary. And then when we did go into junior high, I think where I I, I gained acceptance was um, I, I did a a presentation about Terry Fox. I was selected to be the Terry Fox like team member of that year. And so I, it was probably like the second week of school and I had to give a presentation to my junior high and there was 400 kids. And, you know, I just talked about my amputation and, and uh, shared my story with them. And, and I really can't say that I um, dealt with any I really didn't deal with a lot of outward bullying, you know, as a, as a kid. Um, and I think a lot of that just was because of how things transpired, like having the social worker explain to my elementary school class and then me having that opportunity to speak to my peers. Um, um, but when I look back in that time, I think there was just so much, um, focus that came from myself it came from like the society at large and it even came from probably the medical world at the time too was that you would just do your best to fit into the able-bodied world and I passed enough and I did well enough that I did sort of seem to fit into it and I mean I got a lot of B's in gym class and I'm not entirely sure it was because of my ability but maybe just my effort or something, or maybe giving me a B was the politically correct thing to do. I don't know. But the point is, is it's like, I, I really feel like um, I wasn't given a lot of opportunity from, I guess, the adults in my world, like whether it be my parents, teachers, or even the people who, the medical professionals that were seeing me through, through that to just kind of really embrace the fact that I wasn't able-bodied. Like for me, I very much felt like I had to really stay away from the term disability and I had to really not apply, like apply that to myself. And when I look back, I think some of my regrets are, well, no, you can't really have regrets. But when I look back, what I wish I'd maybe had done differently was when I was 11, I went to the War Amps of Canada conference and I met all these other kids that were amputees. But I decided, nah, I, I don't want to be surrounded with this. And I, I just want to be surrounded with my friends at home. And, you know, I lost an opportunity with that. And uh, it wasn't really until I got onto Instagram four years ago that I started to, like, have a group of peers who are amputees. And uh, it's that has just enriched my life so much, you know, and so I guess to answer your question, to make a long story short, I think at that time I had a lot of support from people, but I also had this ability to blend into the able-bodied world as much as possible. And I was almost being praised for doing that versus really being given the opportunity just to be a teenager that, you know, has had a disability. And I, I think looking back, that was just where society was at at the time. Like, I don't think that anyone did that to, you know, upset me or harm me or, you know, cause me some 
self-esteem issues and some mental health stuff later on in life I think that was just really where society was at and we we just didn't know better right no I, I tend to agree with that with you on that I, I think culturally as well we just kind of just say it is what it, how horrible it might say it sounds it, it, it is what it is but let me just kind of like blend in or let's let me try to not appear to say because I again my story is that when I was, it was 20, I was 25 when I lost, I lost use of my lower limbs, like my legs. And I was right. wearing, and I was wearing leg braces in order for me to stand up and walk. Right. 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 And I walked funny because of these braces and I would wear pants all the way down to the ground that yeah. dragged mud because I didn't want to show people I had a disability. I know. I know. I know. Like I remember being in my twenties and being at outdoor concerts and it's like the hottest day of the summer, you know, seeing the tragically hip play on their road apples tour in the middle of like the prairies, it's the hottest day of the summer. And I'm like the only person wearing jeans and here I'm thinking I'm hiding, but people, if anything, they were probably looking at me like, why is this girl wearing jeans on the hottest day of like the summer, right? You know, and yeah, I was in my my early 20s, like probably 22, 23 at the time. And just kind of that shame and just really not wanting people to see that, which, you know, took up a lot of energy and a lot of time in my head. And in the end didn't really serve me but I didn't know better and you didn't know better either no absolutely not it was you know it was just it was the time of our lives if you will like it's your yeah. 20s and it's like you want to look as it's it's when you're supposed to like have a certain look have a certain vibe have a certain you know what I mean and then and so yeah. it's like how do I fit in if I have a disability and so yeah. there's that body shame that, com that comes to be honest with you similar to you I didn't embrace my 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 myself or um not be ashamed of my body anymore until I became an amputee for some reason yeah yeah you know it's just you learn to kind of just say who am I like getting here like <laughs> yeah, I, exactly exactly and I think some of that also just comes with age and experience too I was gonna say that too I think it's to a point in your life it's like I think I have to love myself now like I think I have yeah. to allow myself to be who I am instead of like you know yeah. who am I doing this for really like yeah you know yes yeah and I in some ways you know I was I was sort of lucky in the sense that um you know my first career I was a teacher and I did that for almost 10 years and I always knew that there'd be, I would go back to school one day and it just kind of after about 10 years of teaching, well, I guess it was actually nine, but almost after a decade of teaching, I realized that uh, social work was calling me. And so I applied to go back to school and I had to take some prereq courses before I was my, before my enrollment was final. And in one of the prereq courses, uh, there was just the, you know, uh, uh, I guess like a topic or, you know, it was like the chapter or this, the topic for the week, um, just on, um, you know, dis disability theory. And I was just so fascinated to realize that there was just so much learning out there that I had no idea about like things that had been studied and there was papers published papers from you know theorists and from people you know who experienced disability and I just really started to learn about um, I guess kind of the different perspectives that we can have and I really learned a lot about how there is there can be a big focus on I guess this sort of able-bodied perspective where we like okay how do I sort of explain this maybe to someone who's listening who's not quite you know doesn't quite have the same experience or the same knowledge but um like for example Christopher Reeves for example um one of his big things when you know he'd been Superman and he had that terrible accident and one of his really big things was is he wanted to walk again and so he spent a lot of time and there was a lot of money invested in him learning how to walk again and you know, society's like, oh, yeah, good for you. That's so great that you want to walk again. Um, and I think what I was reading a different perspective was, if that works for some people, great, like, there's nothing to say, don't not do that. 
but also know that there's people who embrace themselves differently and there's people who are comfortable with the fact that they won't walk again. And those are the people who need to be sort of seen and heard and just integrated as who they are. Like we shouldn't all put uh, the same, I guess, expectations on everyone that you want to be Christopher Reeve and defy all, you know, defy everything and, and walk again, right? There's some people who that's not their journey. And so that really, um, that was like a huge eye opener for me, just learning about that in that, uh, that one week of, of my prereq course there. And it just kind of helped me to understand that, it, you know, it, how we identify and the things that we want to do uh, through being differently abled or having limb difference, or, you know, the term that you prefer to use, it really is up to you and it's just so unique and it, it's just a spectrum and we're all at different places on the spectrum. I know for me, something that I've um, kind of over the years learned is I actually prefer, like I no longer refer to my residual limb as a stump. Like I, I like the term residual limb and that's how I refer to it. And I know that there's people out there that, you know, they still call their own residual limbs um, a stump and they're comfortable with that word. Uh, you also have people, you know, who will just refer to it as a stump because that's, you know, what the common word has been and what people have sort of learned. And I think for me, what I'm just sort of realizing is, um, just feeling comfortable with having conversations with people saying, you know, this, when you're talking to me about this, I would really appreciate that this is the term that I use. And so that's what applies to me. And it may not apply to everybody else, but, and so I just feel like if I kind of model the terms that I prefer, people will use them for me, but I don't necessarily expect everyone else to have the same preferences that I do, right? Right, no, I absolutely agree. And I think it goes back to the same thing about you were saying before with Christopher Reeve, it's like, it's, you know, celebrate him that he wants to do that, but don't expect every person who is a paraplegic that yeah. you'd also expect them to be Christopher Reeve. Yeah, yeah, I know. Like uh, when, uh, you know, when Oscar Pistorius, Pistorius. Yeah. was the, all the rage, you know, people were coming up to me being like, well, how come you can't run like him? And I'd be like, well, how come you can't? Like, why can't you run as well? Why, you know? Or do you want like a blade like him? I'm like, no, like, why would I want that? I have no interest in running like that, you know? And it, it just was really, it was really um, just interesting to see. Yeah, it just, yeah, yeah. I, maybe I'm kind of like, like sort of losing my point here, but just the whole idea of, uh, we have to just celebrate everybody for who they are with where they're at. Oh, absolutely. And, yeah. Oh, I agree with that completely. Now, um, also, because you had this journey, you started this journey very young. What about what you saw from your parents and your mom and, you know, your mom, you talked about your mom being, you know, the mother bear and protective and all of that. Like, what did you see in her that you would say to a parent who's going through this with their child? What advice oh, would you say geez. from that experience? Yeah, um, you know, I think when I think back to um, my parents, um, what they really did well on is they just really um, accepted me for who I was and um, really encouraged me through the whole path, like, you know, going through chemo, losing my leg, you know, starting the rehab process again. Um, I think sometimes my mom pushed a little too much and uh, I would recommend to parents, you know, just know that if you're like 11 or 12 year old kid doesn't want to do their um, physio exercises, it's not because they don't care or want to walk well, it's because they're 11 and 12 and those are boring, right? You know, like there doesn't have to be this perfection. Um, but overall, yeah, that was something my mom sort of had to, we had to deal with that a little bit. But overall, like, I would just say both of my parents were like my biggest champions, my biggest cheerleaders. And my mom in particular, 
she really taught me um, how to advocate. Like she's a very, very good advocate. And uh, I learned a lot from her about that. And, you know, in the end I did after, you know, my 10 years of teaching, I did become um, a social worker and I, I'm a medical social worker now. And one of the big pieces of that is, is advocating for others. And I definitely have my mom to thank for showing me showing me how that works good I I just want to point out I mean that's that's every teenager though mom I don't yeah. want to do the dishes mom I yeah. don't want to you know what I mean yeah. so that's yeah. not a that's not a disability thing that's a child thing. that's a teenager definitely thing. yes it is but there was one thing my mom did and uh this is not at all to um you know we've we've worked past this and we've healed through it and I think parents this is just an example that all parents at some point are going to like make the mistake uh, in when, you know, when I first started walking, I had a pretty pronounced limp and doing exercises to try to fix the limp at age 12 wasn't high on my priority list. Um, but she told me one day that if I didn't start working on my limp and improve my limp, I wasn't going to get a boyfriend. And uh, I think, you know, that that was something that really stuck in my heart for a long time. And when I got into that age where I did start to, you know, care more about what, you know, boys thought of me or even into like early adulthood, um, I really had a lot of uh, insecurity and about my limp. And, you know, like I said, that's decades past, we're through it. Like, you know, I would never ever criticize my mom. I think it was just her way of trying to you know, get me to take things seriously. Uh, but it certainly did have an impact. And uh, I think, you know, so for all parents, just to be aware that the things you say can really have a big impact on your child, right? Oh, absolutely. I think it's, yeah. they see it as, you know, for them, it's motivating. It's a motivating kind of, prep, you know, that coach pep talk about, you know, if you do this, you'll get all the ice cream at the end or, you know, something like that, right? Yeah. Without yeah. realizing how, that affects the person and how that affects a child but it's like to them it's like you know I need to motivate you and I need to get you going so but I but I think that's really important to hear that you know to to, to also be mindful of what you say because it does have a long-lasting effect on the child and and you know and, and how they develop as an adult as well and and good for you for you know for realizing those things and getting passed through those things and 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 moving on in your own journey and, and your own identity of of this is who I am and I've you know and I've gone I've grown through all of that having gone through all of that right yes absolutely absolutely and now you know in my 40s my mom would have been around my age when she was dealing with this 11 year old child who had cancer and nobody gives parents a manual on how to raise kids, right? And there's definitely no like index that talks about when you're raising kids and all of a sudden your kid has cancer and has lost their leg, you know? So I can just really see that my mom at the time was just doing the best that she she could at the time, you yeah. know? No, absolutely. Um, a couple of years ago, and you kind of hinted on this a little bit earlier on, a couple of years ago, you wrote in an article about uh, the, your five proudest moments of being an amputee. Could you share those five with us? Yes, my five proudest moments, um, and I, I have mentioned a couple of them, but yes, I was very proud that day, that first or second week of junior high, when I spoke to my my 400 peers about, you know, Terry Fox and my own experience with amputation and cancer, um, and then I also was very proud of when I was 17, I had... Um, some really good friends that I still keep in touch with to this day, where we decided that we were going to figure out how I was going to rollerblade somehow. And so we spent like hours after school, just in the park on the trails, uh, just trying to figure out how to teach me how to rollerblade. And I did, I did catch on and I did figure it out. And I was an avid rollerblader for a good few years there. And it just helped me to fulfill that dream that I had when I really wanted my roller skates. And I only was allowed to ride my roller skates for like a week or two before the doctor said, you know, no roller skates for you. So I felt like I fulfilled the dream of my roller skate dream. So that was great. Um, then I did also have an experience in my twenties where I decided to move 
to Rwanda, Africa for a couple of years. I, I was, when I, it was part of my teaching career, I was teaching high school students who were training to become elementary school teachers. I taught them English and just, you know, that um, kind of fearlessness of just thinking, okay, I trust my leg. My leg will hold out for me for a couple of years and just getting on a plane and spending two years in East Africa as well as also traveling around um, East Africa. I just was really proud of that. Um, in 2007, I decided to go on another adventure where I decided to do the uh, Camino de Santiago in Spain. And so I again- Oh, that's the long walk. Yeah. So again, I jumped on a plane and I landed in France and I took some buses and trains and got to St. Jean-Pierre-de-Port and I just started walking and 774 kilometers later, I arrived in Santiago and, you know, it takes the average person, I think maybe four weeks, five weeks to do it. And it took me about seven and a half, close to eight, but I did it and, uh, and I was thrilled. And again, this is all back in the days when I used to have a pretty standard, uh, standard leg, like when I didn't have, you know, it was a more kind of simple prosthesis. Um, and then yes, and the other one I talked about was, yeah, when I did go from teaching into social work, and just having that opportunity to just learn about disability theory, and, and, and that it, it just, yeah, it just really shaped my life and changed my life. And I was just so proud to sort of have that, that learning. And yeah be able to but share I, it with us too. But I think having that life experience of traveling and living in um, in Rwanda and then having that soul searching, if you will, of that walk, I'm pretty sure there's a lot of reflections that happen during that walk. I don't know about you, but when I go for a run, that is when I reflect on my day and think about my day, right? But I think all those experiences, I think leads to or lends very well to what you're doing with your career now. And so those life experiences, you have a lot to offer that patient or that person you're talking with in your, in your space. Oh, well, thank you. And, and, you know, and I just have to say that actually, admittedly, um, you know, the fact that we met, you know, over the amputee community over Instagram, and we've kept in touch with some of the same people and whatnot. Um, maybe people who follow amputees who are not amputees, maybe they follow and they feel inspired about the activities that amputees do, or I don't know. But I know for me, when I am following, uh, you know, my fellow amputees on Instagram, I'm not necessarily inspired by what they do with their prostheses because I do it as well. But for me, the inspiration comes like I am inspired by you for all the work and awareness you do through the Amputee Coalition of Toronto. And, you know, the fact that you're like build community with that. And um, Julie, who goes by Ms. Uh, Peggy Pyro, uh, she's an amputee. And what she has inspired me over the years is, is that I've started to, um, she does a lot of rock, she gets dressed up in rockabilly rockabilly pinup and she does like competitions and um i sometimes buy clothes like retro clothing now and um i've like expanded my wardrobe and she's helped me to feel more feminine and it's got nothing to even do with the you know the legs right or um uh andrea who's andrea bird who i know you also know too i just feel really inspired by her because she's just an all-around wonderful human being who um has like got me into um things like physical activities that i just wouldn't have even considered doing like when we were both living in victoria we started to do the park run on, on Saturdays and, you know, I wouldn't have done that if she hadn't have like just brought me into the fold, you know, and mm -hmm. while everyone else was running it, we were walking it and more than happy to walk it. Right. So, yeah, I, I feel like, um, so from each other, like we have so much to like learn, learn from each other and the learning isn't even necessarily like the physical issue that the person's going through. It's like all the other things that they do, you know? Yeah. And no, I think it's, it's that finding that um, community and it's also finding that belonging, right. Or allow you to self-actualize that. Oh, there's all these other things that I could do. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. 100%.
So talk about how your prosthesis is set up there. Cause you talked about how you had a basic one before or sort of, you know, sort of not as advanced as you have now. So I was curious yeah. to understand like what the differences are between what you were using before and, and now. Oh, sure. I think basically the issue for me was, you know, I got fitted for my first prosthesis at 11 years old and I got used to it. And basically it got to a point from 11 to the time I moved out to British Columbia. So from age 11 to, I guess, about 31, 32, I uh, just basically wanted the same prosthesis every time. And my prosthetist would say, well, do you want to try something new? Like there's feet, like I, um, I'm terrible at knowing like the brands and the types that I use. I usually just say to my prosthetist, oh yeah, that sounds great. Let's just use that. But um, back in the day, like in 1989, the foot that was mainly used was called the Seattle light foot. And I loved my Seattle light foot. And apparently, you know, there was feet that surpassed the Seattle light foot. But I was always like, no, I'm good. If it if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Like my kind of, you know, in my 20s, my thing was is that I wanted minimal visits to my prosthetist. I wanted just go get the leg made every like three or four years when I needed it. And then I just wanted to travel the world and hang out with my friends and, you know, go to university and work and things like that. So my prosthetist, uh, you know, in Alberta, he over the years, especially as I got older, really tried to get me interested in trying new things. But I pretty much stayed with the exact same make, model and style from the age of 11 to like 32, 33. And so what that leg was like then was um, I used a Seattle Lightfoot, which was a pretty... Um, like a pretty standard ankle where it didn't have a lot of give or a lot of move in it. It was like really sort of static, I guess. <laughs> and, um, you know, the, I used to tend to go with the, I wanted a prosthesis that looked like a real leg. So I would go with uh, the ones that were covered with enamel or whatever hard product goes over it. And I always wanted it to, you know, match my, my flesh tone and then the um, the socket that I used to keep it on, I just used like those old fashioned leather sockets that you see on some of the older legs. And, you know, I really like when I think about that, having that style of leg, it helped me like I, you know, lived in Africa for two years. I lived in England for three years. I did that big walk in Spain. You know, I did lots of hikes through the Rockies. I hiked in, um, I hiked in and did some hiking in the Wicklow Mountains in Ireland. You know, like I pounded the pavement of many different European cities when I was traveling. And so that leg served me really, really well. It was when I came to British Columbia and got more settled down here, my prosthetist said, you know, you, you could kind of get updated and use uh, stuff that's a little more updated. You'll actually find that uh, it will, you'll get better use out of your, the foot on your residual limb. And we can also get feet that have more, um, there's more dynamic to them, which will ultimately help you limp, limp less and things like that. So um, that's been an interesting journey because I really didn't want to change and it was working with this prosthetist and like I said it took probably a good three or four years before we really perfected to the leg to the comfort my old one was always so comfortable because my prosthetist and I had done the same thing for 20 years um, but with that what has brought up for me is um, just really I have thought a lot about the inequity of um, of living in different provinces and how we get our funding for some of these things. Like everyone is so quick to talk about, you know, oh, it's amazing what they do with prosthetics these days and the bells and the whistles. And now that I do have like a little bit more bell and whistle to my to my foot and that I'm more aware of the cost of that. Um, yeah, I think a lot about the inequity of, of being an amputee. And for myself, I feel very um, kind of sometimes 
like I know that because I lost my leg as a child and I have that support from the War Amps of Canada's CHAMP program as an adult amputee, I know that I'm very lucky to have that support because not every Canadian gets that support. And I would like to become more involved with, you know, writing an MLA or, you know, getting more involved because I feel like in some ways um, I haven't experienced some of the hardship others have had with just being able to get, you know, the basic standard prosthetics that it, my prosthetist says everyone should have the equipment that helps them keep up with their own peers. So, you know, if you're not a runner, you're not going to get approved for like the blades that Oscar Pistorius used, but you should, in theory, be able to keep up with your peers. Um, <clears throat> it's funny you brought up the inequities in provinces because you now have experienced both um, Alberta and the BC. Yeah. Uh, and that's night and day, if anyone is not familiar with the funding of those two provinces. Can you maybe share a little, if you can, about those two things? Sure. Um, you know, again, this is, I think, where some of my privilege has come is I have never really had to worry about the the funding, just because if, if I need something, um, I can apply for help to the Warrants of Canada. Um, I also, <laughs> probably for all those years that I was just sticking to a really old style, I, I don't know that I was at that time I never I never ever didn't not get approved like I I know when I was younger and growing up the War Amps of Canada made me um, a swimming leg that I used for a lot of years which was really great I think they ended up making me a couple but I was never not approved for what I wanted uh, for my my prosthesis um, and so I don't entirely know how much in Alberta they will spend but I also know in Alberta you could get a new leg like once every two years or so um, I usually stretch it out to three or four because quite frankly getting new legs made is so time consuming and so boring that you know I would prefer to stretch it out as long as possible but I know in British Columbia with um, my uh, prosthetist wanting me to use a foot that's more uh, dynamic and that has more like give to it and more movement in it um, in order to get that to happen he needed to get a part that I always in my head call it the flux capacitor and that's not what it is because that's from back to the future but um, it's called oh the farrier coupler it's called the farrier coupler and I love my farrier coupler because um with my farrier coupler, I also have uh, a foot where it's like an activity foot. It's not like a full on top of the rain running foot, but it does have a blade and it gives me opportunities for hiking and for riding my bike. Like it just makes the uh, makes it so much easier. And so to switch between the feet, um, you know, I believe that the Warrams of Canada helped with the farrier coupler and it also helped with the the foot that I use for activity and so having had that experience in the last few years I really truly don't know what British Columbia's maximum amount is but I do know that they didn't cover those two things and if it hadn't have been for the being an, an adult champ from the Warrams of Canada I don't know that I would have been able to have that opportunity. Mm -hmm. No, this yeah. really is a huge uh, inequity across Canada um, yeah. with um, with funding for prosthesis. To your point earlier about just be able to keep up with your peers, right? To set yeah. you up for success. Because if you're not set yeah. up for success, then I think, truly think, and there's research on this and there's papers on this, that you tend to eat more of the healthcare system yeah then had you been set up for success from the very beginning yeah. so yeah yeah and I would know. agree with that and that's where it's been I've just been so grateful throughout my life as a child to have had the support from the Warrams of Canada because you know they uh, because of them I always have been able to keep up with my peers what um what advice would you give to those who may be facing amputation similar to your procedure 
at an earlier, you know, like a, as a child or, or maybe even, even as an adult, like what would you say to them? What advice would you give them? Oh yeah. I, I would actually just tell them that, um, you know, uh, to, you know, definitely life's not over and that there's still going to be a lot that they can do and they may have to modify things like from what they could do but they'll they'll figure they'll they'll figure out their own modifications and they'll get good at doing things again it just might take some time and practice and effort and uh, not to compare yourself to how you were before you lost your leg you know and every opportunity is like a nice problem solving opportunity I see some of these kids like on uh, I think it was on Instagram I saw this like wicked dynamo uh, little video of a young girl who is an amputee who was doing like backflips at like Olympic level and I was just like that is amazing and if there's an amputee out there who wants to learn how to do backflips they will figure out how to do backflips. I did not figure out how to do backflips as an amputee because it was not a priority for me right but I figured out how to go on really long hikes and go on really long bike rides absolutely you know know, whatever whatever feeds your soul as I say and lastly of course where can people connect and find you oh um I am more than happy for people uh if they're on Instagram if they want to me look me up at an, an awakened amputee it's an.awakened.amputee not awesome. an awkward amputee yes <laughs> <laughs> sorry about that but hey yeah. like to your point you know if you want to re uh, a renaming so- of sorts <laughs> Hopefully that will still work. Well, awesome. Thank you so much for spending the time with me today and sharing your journey. I want to thank Annika Ursulak for joining me today. I will share all the links on my website at www.airstyledemeanor.com. Thank you for tuning in. If you have any comments, questions, or show ideas, please connect with me on Facebook and Instagram at The FDR Show. Until next time, I'm your host, Aristotle Domingo, and this has been The FDR Show Podcast.